Greetings, everyone. I don't know how many of you in this room get up in the morning sometimes by sort of crawling out of bed, put your hands on an ottoman, and slowly make it erect, and then walk with your back stooped over into the bathroom and kind of stretch a little by little. But that's my morning routine. Uh, I have a bad back. I don't want to stand here and talk about my bad back, but there are people in this room and people along the tape program who have very bad backs, who have arthritis, who have aching knees and joints. We have a scramble every Friday afternoon. That's when you all six hit a ball and you pick up your ball and go to the best ball and put the ball back down again and hit it. And all of the people are out there, a lot of them up in their 80s, still playing golf and have a lot of fun. One gentleman really made my evening yesterday. He said, well, you're looking good, Ted. He said, you still running a lot? I said, well, not really. I said, I'll jog a little bit now and then. But I said, my old knees wore out a long time ago. I had about 25 years of basketball. and I've had an operation on my elbow. And my lower back hurts. And I started telling him about all my debilities and pain. Well, I shouldn't have said that because he started telling me about all his pain. And we began comparing notes about how old we are. And I'll tell you how you know when you're old. I have a few things here that you may have seen. You know you're getting old when... Are you ready for this? Everything hurts, and what doesn't hurt doesn't work anymore. <laughs> you fellows out there especially know you're getting old when the gleam in your eye is from the sun hitting your bifocals. I won't read all of these, because there's about 20 of them, but I think you really know you're getting old when you get winded merely playing a game of chess. And you also know you're getting old when you see a pretty girl go by and your pacemaker makes the garage door go up. <laughs> And you know you're getting old when the very last exercise you had was when you were a pallbearer for a friend who died from overdoing it. Or you know you're getting old when you sink your teeth into a steak and they stay there. But they have things you can buy to prevent that. My father died at age 93 and one half. The other day I had my grandson Michael in my office, and I walked up to the picture of my mother, and I said, that's great-grandmother. Now, he understands English words. He's beginning to try to say a few words, so he'll immediately point to the duck. When I say, that's the duck, at least do a little uh, route around my office in there and show him some of the pictures and things and try to identify certain things. So first time ever, I said, that's great-grandma. And I said, she would have loved to have seen you, Michael, to be able to see what you look like. I got to thinking about my father dying at age 93 and one half after a long estrangement, and how nice it will be when he comes back to life again in the resurrection and is able to pick up and to read all the many booklets, the articles, the magazine articles that I have written in all of these years, perhaps even to pick off the shelf hundreds of these sermons and some of the telecasts, and can actually see what happened in all of the years that went by after our estrangement and even after his death. But I thought, how nice it is going to be for him to be able to see Michael, and perhaps eventually, Michael's children. Now, you know it says in Luke 13, 28, Jesus talking to the Jews, You shall see Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom. In the transfiguration, for some reason, I don't really know how, Peter, James, and John were able to recognize Noah and Elijah, and they knew exactly who those people were. How they knew, I don't know exactly, but they did recognize who they saw in the transfiguration as if they were already projected forward in the mind's eye into the kingdom of God. I pondered that often. I know that we are to see Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of God, but what is it they are going to see? What will their eyes behold? If you read through the latter chapters of the book of Revelation, you see that after the great tribulation, the heavenly signs in the day of the Lord with the four trumpet plagues, all of the seven trumpet, pla trumpet plagues, I should say, and the three woes, that to come all the way down to the time of God's intervention and the actual second coming of Jesus Christ, there is no way you can deduce that there is more than 30, maybe even less than that, 30% of the population of all of mankind left on this earth. There's strong indication, because it talks about a tithe of God's people, that perhaps only 10% of the peoples of Israel will survive that horrifying time. It talks about all of the waters of the earth turning to blood. 
we can actually deduce from modern technology, from what is available to mankind and all of our superpowers and the armies of the world and nuclear weapons and biological and chemical weapons and what man is doing to alter the course of nature itself, the very great and growing concern over the lack of the ozone layer, that huge hole over the Arctic area that is causing the melting gradually of the polar ice caps, of how God says that you will hear and see things that will literally cause a man to double over. And it says in the prophecies, how is it that I see a man with his hands on his loins as if it were a woman in travail? For a man is so agonized by what his eyes see that he is doubled over in pain and clutching at his stomach in such shock that it is a physical blow. The waves roaring and men's hearts failing them for fear. I want to project forward into that time for a moment, when at the time of the second coming of Jesus Christ, there will be only scattered remnants of humankind. All of the great cities of this earth will have been destroyed, and the bulk of their populations obliterated. Tokyo, London, Hong Kong, Bangkok, New York, Miami. The low-lying areas of the earth will be completely covered by a massive deluge of huge tidal waves that will literally change the coastlines and alter the shoreline of the entirety of the earth. The Bible says every mountain shall be brought low and every valley shall be exalted. It talks about how the desert lands will eventually bloom, but the present fertile valleys and confluences of rivers and the places of the greatest habitation of mankind will be desolate. As today, the great forbidding mountains are completely desolate. I know a man who has written a book called The Seven Summits. We don't tend to realize how big of a world it is out here, but in one year he tried to scale, and I think he did at least in two years, the pinnacle or the summit of the seven tallest mountains on every continent in the world. But man tends to live nearer the oceans and down where the air is thicker and we can breathe it. We don't live generally above eight to 10,000 feet. Bogota, Colombia, Mexico City, a few cities in the world are six, eight, 10,000 and above, but very few, mostly down around where the air, the mantle of air on the earth is a little more breathable. So what is going to greet the eyes of those people who are resurrected, who are the dead in Christ, and those survivors who are going to come straggling back in all of the great chapters of the Bible to talk about from Ezekiel 36, the entire book of Zephaniah, Micah 2, I should say 4, and Isaiah 2 about the establishment of the kingdom of God on this earth. Talk about the regathering of captive Israelites, perhaps only 10% of them, to be brought back into the lands that were given to their fathers, and that as it were, a whole new era of redevelopment, rediscovery, of rehabilitation, rebuilding, reconstruction from total desolation is going to occur. Out here in West Texas just this last year, a small town was utterly obliterated. There was simply nothing left. Those few people who were fortunate enough to survive when their homes and their mobile homes were simply taken away and smashed into kindling went back to that town with a lot of other outside help, with a lot of nearby towns, a lot of state and federal help, and a lot of volunteer help from church groups. You could drive out there right now, and they are busily rebuilding. A few years ago, a gigantic black funnel cloud came in on Wichita Falls, and a whole portion of Wichita Falls was absolutely leveled and just obliterated. But they moved back in there, and they rebuilt and that's the way it's going to be in the beginning of the kingdom of God. In Colossians 3 and verse 1, it talks about, If ye be risen with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Now, that's fine. We can think of that. Isn't that nice? A metaphorical statement. We can sit here in our chairs. Seek those things which are above. But in a few minutes, the sermon is going to be over, and then we'll seek the coffee pot, or the cookie, or someone else's hand, or a conversation or a chair to ease our tired bodies and bones into, or our automobile, or a service station, or a restaurant, or our beds tonight. And seeking those things which are above is a very fleeting concept, usually. Christ said, Seek ye first the kingdom of God, and all these other things shall be added unto you. If you seek first the kingdom of God, and you put those spiritual values in your life ahead of every other materialistic thing, then the big questions are settled. And they are over, and you have resolved the biggest question in your life, 
Where am I going and what happens to me if I am wiped out, if I am suddenly taken by a stroke or a heart attack or an automobile accident or a plane crash or simple old age? Then you know that you're going to be in God's kingdom. But by and large, on an hour-by-hour basis, we do not seek those things which are above. I know, in looking back at my own past, that it's very, very difficult to keep your mind on the kingdom of God, and nobody in this room and nobody on the tape program can tell me they do, on a constant day-in, day-out basis. It is utterly impossible, because we're human, we're still largely carnal, we are still physical, we have physical needs, physical appetites, physical debilities, and physical aches and pains that continually remind us of the passing years of our gradual aging and of the problems that come to us as a human being. Now, in the midst of all of this attempt to live a Christian life with a very real Satan the devil and literally legions of tens of millions of his demons that are really very desirous to cluster around God's people and try to put moods and attitudes and contrary spirits into their minds if they possibly can, it is a constant battle to really tell yourself you are looking forward to the kingdom of God. It makes me wonder how often do we pray, Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. And I can answer in the most part, I think, very rarely. I find that we tend to pray that way when we see a horrible, wretched thing that occurs, a terrible mass murder the crash of an airplane, the loss of a loved one, something that strikes a blow that pierces into the marrow of our bone and the innermost part of our being that just hurts us so badly, physically, emotionally, and mentally. Then we say, oh, thy kingdom come. I wish this life were over. But by and large, if we're doing well and we're comfortable and our bellies are filled and things are going along rather well for us, we do not day after day pray, thy kingdom come. I know that as a younger person, I was tempted, and I think a lot of people are tempted, and I think Satan subtly tries to tempt us to say, keep your kingdom back, delay it, shove it out into the future a little bit, give us more time in this world here and now. I have an old Bible in there with pieces falling out that I'm going to retire, and I had a page pasted in it. Way back in one of the classes in college in the 1950s, we computed all the various festivals and the Feast of Trumpets. It was very important to us because we thought that perhaps by 1975, Christ would be on the earth. So to make sure I was safe and with certain manipulations of chronology, history, and biblical prophecy, there was one man who was alleged to be quite erudite and quite an eschatologist among us, and he thought that he knew practically everything there was to know about 19-year cycles and a punishment upon Israel and when all of these things would gel and come together. So to be on the safe side, because I really depended upon the dates he dug up for me regarding the fall of Babylon and the end of the times of the Gentiles, I put a calendar in my Bible and went all the way to that far distant age in the future, way out there, in 1955, I'm looking forward, and I just can't imagine, 1982. And it took the whole page from 1956 to 1982 to get all the Feast of Trumpets and Days of Atonement and Feast of Tabernacles, and 1972, a big asterisk by that, that's when America went down the drain, and the cities were gone, and millions died, and the Great Tribulation had started, and everybody went off to Petra. Had that all figured out. Well, the old calendars, long since the glue came loose, and just like me, it got old, fell out of my Bible one day, and I didn't figure beyond 1982, and here it is, 1988. Now I'm wondering if that's going to happen by 2002. I know it is going to happen, but there's a subtle thing that begins to occur in the back of our minds, and especially, most especially, to young people, to teenagers to people who are 8 and 9 and 10 and 7 and 14 and 12 and even people who are in their 30s who have a young family started and on the way. And that thing that begins to occur is, it's not fair. Why is it happening in my lifetime? Why is it happening to me? And with one part of your mind as a child sitting there hearing a sermon that talks about terrible things happening in the future, you're saying, I don't want to believe it. 
As a boy in Oregon, I used to put cardboard inserts in my shoes because we would wear them out. I would wear out the ones handed down to me by, by my brother, and they had holes in them, and so I had spares in the hip pocket, and as soon as they got soaked and worn through, I'd slip another spare in there to wear them because I had a hole that big around my shoes. Well, when it rains, it did often in Oregon, I was in trouble. But I remember my dad was continually talking about the great drought, as he called it. Not drought, but he pronounced it drought, as I guess they do in Iowa. And when it would rain in Oregon as a little boy, I would sing a little song as I would go to school, because I felt that the rain coming down from heaven was such a blessing, so precious on the grass in Oregon. I would tell the grass to drink, you know, drink grass, absorb that moisture in there, because there's not much more where that came from. And I thought the drought was just ahead, just around the corner. I remember standing on the bus stop one time when I was about 11, icy cold. My mom was beside me with a big coat on, and I put my arm around her waist, and I got up underneath her coat, and I looked up, and I said, Mom, will you take me with you to Jerusalem when you and Daddy flee? And she patted me. She said, Of course, Teddy. And I was really scared, because I didn't know how close it was going to be. And at that time, they hadn't seen the 1935 old issue of the uh, National Geographic, where my mom read the article about Petra, so they hadn't made up their minds that we're going to go to Petra. Yet at that time, they thought we were going to go to Jerusalem. That's where I told her I wanted to go. Of course, once I saw it, uh, years later, I didn't really want to go there very much. And right now, because they're rioting and killing one another, I don't think you do either. But I did at that time when I was only 11. I want to give you some encouragement. Because, you know, my father is going to come back, and he's going to come back to life, and someday he's going to see... Michael, and all of those who will come along after him. Several years ago, I was very, very privileged to see the tombstone in an old churchyard in Kings Lynn, England, about 80 or 90 miles northeast of London, up by Ely, which bore the name of my family. Two family names were in there, including the name Garner and the name Armstrong. And it was a great privilege to me, and I've wanted to know a little more about some of these people. And over the years, my sister... Dorothy has tracked down the genealogies, and I have some really prized possessions at the present time, including a picture of my mother's mother when she was a young woman, and she was a very beautiful woman. Her name was Belle. And I had to look at these eyes and get that glass and try to see the details, and I was really curious, really interested about these faces of my great-great-grandparents and great-grandparents and my grandparents, some of whom I had known, and realized that I wouldn't be here if it hadn't been for every one of them. The same thing is true of you, of every one of you. And that Michael wouldn't be here if Belle Talboy hadn't married William Dillon and had Loma Dillon, who married Herbert Armstrong, who had Garner Ted, who had Mark. Now, when I say that we will see Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom, and I ask, what will Abraham see? Can you imagine the joy, the incredible feeling that this gentleman and Isaac, his son, and Jacob, his grandson, are going to experience? Abraham, when he says, you mean Jacob had all these children? And Jacob, when he says, you mean all of these are of Judah? All of these are of Levi? Simeon grew so great? These are Manasseh and Ephraim? And look and peer into all these faces and try to see the tribal characteristics and the similarities. And there are similarities. Certain stocks are dominant. You can walk along the streets in Fort Lauderdale and Miami, Florida, where so many New York Jews have moved, and it's just like looking at people who went into a store to buy a similar mask within about 10 or 12 different parameters, but the similarities are so absolutely striking that you walk along and you see literally thousands of Jewish people, and you know they are Jewish immediately, and you see them and recognize them. And there is a predominant strain in that particular tribe or that family of human beings that makes itself visible in generation after generation. And so eventually these great patriarchs are going to come into the kingdom of God and see all of their progeny. Now, the point is that when Almighty God brought ancient Israel out of Egypt, they took their kids with them. If the parent went through the process of killing the animal and smearing the blood on the door and the lintel or painting it on there with a brush of hyssop, the little children who didn't know any better, 
didn't even know what was going on, whether they were older teens or younger or preteens or five or six or just barely toddling and able to say a few Hebrew words, were protected by God's angels as the death angel was abroad because of what their parents did. And God told Israel, when the days go on and your child says, what do you mean by this service? And you tend to forget. You remind them generation after generation, we're doing this because this is commemorative of when God brought us out of Egypt. They, it said, and their families and their children and even their servants and the strangers and their cattle with them. A great multitude were brought out. There's a scripture in the 11th chapter of 1 Corinthians that talks about a woman having hair that is not to be shorn or cut with a razor, but is feminine and is a sign of the fact that she is under her husband's authority, quote, because of the angels, end quote. And when God writes letters to the churches in Revelation 2 and Revelation 3, he says, to the angel of the church of Ephesus, to the angel of the church of Sardis, to the angel of the church of Laodicea, I know thy works. Why? Well, because there are angels and some of them are put over certain churches, and those were seven angels contemporaneous who were perhaps working with the human leadership of those churches along an ancient Roman male route in Asia Minor. And so he was addressing the spirit whom God had detailed to look after, protect, and watch over those particular people who lived back then. I think you will be, finally, at some point, absolutely dumbfounded when you find how many times in your life an angel intervened and you didn't know it. For your child, for your loved one, for you yourself. Every one of us in this room could regale the rest of us for several hours with close calls, near misses, very frightening experiences in an automobile or an airplane, or with a knife or a sharp object, or when you fell out of a tree or a ladder, or like Mr. Vance last night was probably for a moment worried, is this it, am I going to drown? And that thought comes through your mind. You've had some near misses, some close calls. But there probably are close calls that you know absolutely nothing about. I had Cheryl, I call her Shirley Pick and Chicken for the fun of it sometimes, and she was in the back seat of the 310, and I was in my airplane, and we were going to go up the Northern California beaches. We got rained out and turned around and went elsewhere, but we tried to go up there. And she didn't like to sit up in front with me, and I didn't mind, but it, I always wanted her to sit up in the cockpit and look out. She said, no, I don't, you know, I'll get back here in the back, so... Here I got six seats in there, and in the second seat on the second row behind me is my wife. And I'm just going along up the other side of Bakersfield, and I had called and asked for flight following on radar, and I'm droning along, and I'm looking. I've got my aux tanks pretty full, and I've got my wingtip tanks about a quarter of the way down or so, so I thought, well, I'll burn my aux fuel, auxiliary fuel tank. And to do that, you've got to lean over here by the floor and take this switch, there are two of them, and turn them, turn your boost pumps on. So I leaned down as I did, I looked up, and right out that window, looking to me as close as those bulbs on that wall right there, just plastered in my vision, I will never forget it because it made me see that thing, and I'll see it to my dying day, was the front end of a Cherokee 6 with that inimitable little scoop right down there with a the prop whirling like this, and the airplane looked like it was inside my plane with me. It was so close, it absolutely transfixed me, ah, and before I knew it, it was gone, and it could not have missed us by more than just about three, four, five feet above my airplane like that, and I have never forgotten it. Then I got scared after it was all over. My heart started to pound, and then after that, I got mad. So I called the air traffic controller, and I said, Burbank Control, whatever it was, Burbank Approach, whoever I had on the radar, maybe Los Angeles Center, I said, did you paint a target? So-and-so told him where I was. He said, no, he didn't. I said, are you painting at least a primary target? No, I'm not painting anything. I said, well, I want to, want to declare a near miss. I said, we almost died, and I really gave him a little piece of my mind, but I guess there's nothing they can do because the guy did not have a transponder, and if he had, of course, the controller, if he did see it, was trying to cover himself because every word that I speak and every word that he speaks is being recorded automatically on a tape recorder down there at L.A. Center, and there was no way he was going to acknowledge, yeah, I saw it, but I just goofed. I didn't tell you about him. But that was one of the closest calls I've ever had in my life. Another time, and I've been very thankful for the fact that I was able to learn how to fly and learn how to fly pontoon aircraft. 
I've flown many different types of float planes, and I owned a float plane for a short period of time. And when you get on a glassy surface, in order to try to unstick one of those pontoons, you simply take the yoke and just pop it like that, waggle a wing, and it gets one pontoon up, and that causes it to kind of lurch sideways, and that picks the other one up, and you hear the horn kind of going beep, 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 which is saying that you're trying to stall, and you just reach down with a lever and adjust the flaps a little bit, and off you fly, no problem. It's easier, in case you didn't know this, to take off in a float plane if you have a slight chop because it tends to break that kind of a gripping feeling of the water on the pontoons. And this was a very still day that I'm talking about when you learn to get that wing up like that. Oftentimes you will do that even in a chop, because it'll fly a little more quickly if you kind of unstick that left pontoon. Well, I've been flying float planes for some years, and I've been flying the Falcon jet for about eight or nine years, and one time Dan Spencer and I were flying, and we always went left seat, right seat, left seat, right seat. So sometimes it's my turn to fly co-pilot, and sometimes it's my turn, 50% of the time, to fly the left seat. And we were over in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. We filled up with fuel. A lot of people came out to see us off, and they'd had a snowstorm. And they had plowed the field, and of course it was still snowing. And by the time everybody was hugging and shaking hands and saying goodbye, and we'd been there for a special YOU basketball tournament and a special church service and everything, we're ready to roll down the runway. Well, it was only about 4,800 feet long. I'd forgotten I could go look it up. But at the other end of it, it just dropped down, and there was a series of big red-painted stanchions with the ILS lights there. They're kind of like strobes that blink to show you your way in on an instrument approach. And we started going down the runway, and those little bitty small nose wheels, there are two of them, they're only about that far apart and about that big around, and the nose of the Falcon jet were just pushing up that wet, sticky snow right in front of it. And I said 70, and then 80, and then 80, and then 80, and Dan sat there, and the runway was going under us at 80 nautical miles an hour, and we had to have about 110 in order to lift that airplane off. And I'm seeing the end of the runway coming perilously close. And I yelled, almost at the top of my lungs, I said, rotate, Dan, right seat, and pulled like that and popped it like that, all the way to the stops on the right hand. When I did, nose wheel came out, the left wheel came free of the snow, and it just kind of wallowed like that, and the alarm that says you're about to stall said beep, 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 a few times just like when I was flying on the water. And that airplane flew and missed those stanchions by maybe five feet. And to show you how shook up we were, we both sat there looking out the window. And by the time we got to 5,000 feet, Dan said, gear up. Normally we say gear up just barely after rotate, barely after you lift off. We're at 5,000 feet. The gear's still down. Dan says, gear up, you know. <clears throat> that I dreamed about many a time. If I had not had the experience of knowing how to lift a wing on a pontoon plane, because you simply never do that on wheels, nobody would ever do that in a jet airplane. If I would not had that built into me almost intuitively, I wouldn't be standing here talking to you. We've all died in a gigantic orange explosion of several thousand gallons of kerosene and a crumpled airplane. That's all there is to it. So I know that God's angels are about and that they do protect us. Many people are concerned about their children. I want to tell you, you needn't be if you are straight and right with God. One of the greatest guarantees that you can have for your children, your family, your grandchildren, is how right and how straight you are with God. Whether or not that blood of that lamb is painted on the lintels and doorposts of your heart, bright red and clear, so that God sees it clearly, and his angels see it clearly. And when the death angel is stalking about, as he shall, in the great tribulation and the day of the Lord, he will pass over your home and your children. Children tend to feel that time is closing in on them, that the truth of God, and we do have the truth of God, make no mistake about that is something they almost wish they didn't know. They'd almost like to trade it for something the Methodists preach, or the Baptists, or the Presbyterians. They talk about when great-grandmother died and went to heaven. They don't talk about the world coming to an end. They don't talk about New York and London and Los Angeles being submerged in 120 feet of water. They don't talk about only 10% of humankind left walking around on the earth like straggling refugees. When's there going to be time for me to marry and fall in love and you know, other, other way around, fall in love and then marry, hopefully, but fall in love and marry and, and have children. 
and live my life and have my fun and have my experiences. I want to share a few scriptures with you. Let's turn to the 11th chapter of Isaiah, first of all. Isaiah 11. And by the way, for those of you who may have had Seventh-day Adventist backgrounds, there is no way that they can answer the concept of a desolate earth and the saints up in heaven in the light of this scripture that talks about those conditions to become extant on this earth during the kingdom of God. There shall come forth a rod out of the stem of Jesse. That really means a shoot. That is a green little shoot or sprig out of the stem or the root of Jesse, who was David's father. And a branch, capital letter B, and the translators knew to capitalize that because it obviously does refer to Christ, shall grow out of his roots. And the Spirit of the Eternal shall rest upon him. I like to put the word eternal in place of the word Lord for the simple reason that it's translated out of the Hebrew from the YHVH, which some people pronounce Yahweh or Yahweh or Java or Jehovah. But it does mean the ever-living one or the eternal one, the life self-inherent one. The Spirit of the Eternal shall rest upon him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the eternal. And he shall make him of quick understanding in the fear of the eternal, the kind of understanding we can have. And he shall not judge after the sight of his eyes, like we are prone to do, neither reprove after second-person and third-person tales and gossip, or after the hearing of his ears. But with righteousness shall he judge the poor, meaning spiritually poor and humble and meek, and reprove with equity for the meek of the earth. He shall smite the earth with the rod of his mouth. That is a symbolic metaphor for a command and then the plagues that are to fall that the angelic hosts are to bring and to slay millions of wicked, filthy, rotten, good-for-nothing, murderous people. And there is only one solution for entire nations and, in fact, certain races of people with only certain minuscule exceptions. Because the great religions of the world have primarily been nationalistic and chauvinistic. Islam, in its right-wing fundamentalism, that now has an iron grip on the mentality of Iran, is abominable. Now, recently, I'm an American, and I'm a fairly patriotic American, but at the same time, I know God's word. I know what God's word would say ought to be done there, and so, of course, I don't applaud war and shooting and sinking of boats and so on and killing people. But those crazy Iranians are over there attacking Dutch, British, Japanese, Norwegian, and American, and all other nationalities, including Panamanian ships, and killing people because they are absolute fanatics. Now, we all endured together, even though they were not Americans, and I dare say that if they had been Americans, you're your level of, of agony and your prayers, perhaps, for those poor people who endured 13 solid days. How would you like to sit in that chair you're in for 13 days? How would you like to sit there with your arms perhaps even tied, being allowed maybe to go to an absolute filthy, overflowing restroom inside the tiny capsule of an aircraft? How would my old back make it? in 13 days. I mean, after I fly for four hours and 15 minutes in the King Air, I can hardly walk. I get out and I'm just barely able to stretch. 13 days? I don't know how in the world they did it. But those fanatical, rabid people were the kind of people who could put the kind of terror into a human mind that they can pick him up out of his chair and drag him to the front of the airplane with other people sobbing and crying, saying, no, put a gun right to his temple and just blow brains all over the door. And you saw it on TV. I saw the body. Saw them kick the body out right on TV. Open the door and here comes a human body. Splat! No life in it. What do you think ought to happen to the people who do things like that? God says that they deserve to be killed. Richly deserve it. And that's what Christ is going to do. Now, their defense minister comes on. And he's prattling away about how the great Satan in the United States is is an evil nation, and we're going to shed the blood of Americans because they've shed, he said, the holy blood of our Arabic, you know, Iranian brothers. He calls it holy blood. They're the holy people, and we are the great Satan. Now, you know, there is a church that calls me a leader of the church of Satan. I remember when Jesus Christ of Nazareth was accused 
by a very ultra-right-wing religious fanatical body of people as being literally able to perform miracles by the power of Beelzebub, Satan the devil, and representing by his work and his life's ministry, Satan the devil. And he actually said that they were in jeopardy of committing the unpardonable sin. It is not for us to hang labels and to say who is who and who is not who, so far as churches and religious bodies or religious leaders are concerned. But some people seem constrained to do that. But Almighty God is going to come down in great and holy and righteous wrath And he is going to reprove with the rod of his mouth by a command that is going to slay millions of human beings. And I want to get the message across that they are not innocent bystanders. They are not holy. They are not righteous. They are depraved, rotten, hate-filled, jealous, criminal people. Almighty God clearly says so. And the angels are going to cry in heaven and say, Holy and righteous art thou, O eternal, because thou hast judged thus, for they have drunk the blood of prophets, and you have given them the blood of, of their own blood to drink. He shall smite the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips shall he slay the wicked, and righteousness shall be the girdle of his loins, and faithfulness the girdle of his reins. The wolf shall also dwell with the lamb. And the leopard shall lie down with the kid. Now, I don't know about you, but they always say there's sort of an old saw in the entertainment business. And I've seen some of the people who are guests on the Johnny Carson show refer to this when Joan Embry had just been there with a the little spider monkey. They come in all chagrined because they say, never follow the animals. It's so true. When you are flipping around the dial and you see dolphins or monkeys or whatever, animals from Africa, a herd of elephants or giraffes or some strange-looking creatures, maybe a topi or a copy or maybe a quatamundi or something from Central and South America or over in Africa. You always tend to look. I have loved the Jacques Cousteau series, very educational, very informative. And to see these fantastic creatures, they've had a full special on leopards, actually see the leopard in the den and see the leopard in its little kitten and see the way it actually licks the little kitten and the way the kittens play and the way they grow up. I've seen pictures of the way a little kangaroo is born. Evolutionists ought to try that one on. Do you know how big a kangaroo is when it's born? It's about as big as the tip of your little finger. Because it is born as an embryo. And it is blind. But it comes out of the birth canal and immediately starts to wiggle like a little translucent piece of spaghetti. Kind of a pink piece of spaghetti. It looks like a newt or a salamander without a fully developed head, arms, or tail. And it starts to wiggle up the hair of the the lower belly of the female, and it gets into that pouch and finds one of the nipples and attaches itself to it, and it's blind, and it stays attached for months, and it starts to grow. But its growth is impeded if there is a young kangaroo in the pouch. Because the young, and they just keep on having, on a regular cycle, those embryos. And when the young kangaroo in the pouch finally reaches, they call it a, what is it down there? Not a Louie, Kitty, something, they call it a joey. When the joey in the pouch reaches 20 pounds, the joey finally jumps out. The minute the joey jumps out and is on his own to crop and eat, the little embryo begins to grow. But before that time, it didn't grow. Some genetic trigger inside of it did not let it grow to crowd the pouch until the joey jumped out and then it takes off and starts to grow. You know, recently they showed a film of a bear that was in deep hibernation and these people and children were right there and they actually dug into this snowbank in this cave and they got this bear out and they dragged it out and the bear was in such a deep sleep that they actually suspended it and weighed it and the bear never woke up. And they put the bear back into the cave, and it continued to sleep. Yet the bear can have the baby, and the baby can begin to nurse. And you know that all the bear babies, no matter when they're engendered, are always born in the same month. They're always born in January. doesn't matter when they're engendered. They all have the same birth month. And they're born when the bear is in the deepest possible sleep that is literally almost like death. And the bear has accumulated gigantic body layers of body fat, and that fat pours out in milk while the bear is in a deep sleep, and the little cub is beginning to grow in the den. 
And it's big enough when it comes out of the den to begin to go around and forage for itself with its mother. But you know that the bear, during all those months of the long winter, never has to go to the bathroom to say it for little children? How is that possible? Month after month, it does not have to foul its den. That process just stops when it's in hibernation. And evolutionists say there is no God. That's how you look at what David said, only the fool has ever said in his heart, there is no God. You can study any little bit of nature, and it is awesome. Now, I don't know about you, but I've always wanted to take a ride on the back of a lion. I've always wanted to get on and just put my hand in the mane and say, go ahead, Leo, and just bound around, you know, and scare the antelope. But it says here, the wolf shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the kid. Can you imagine a leopard, as wild as they are, lying beside a little tiny baby goat, a little bitty old goat with a cute little face and little old eyes, you know, right in the crook of a leopard's arm. The leopard is kind of licking the goat, and the goat is licking the leopard. The two of them are lying there licking one another. Now, would that ever be something to see? There are some people that have actually seen a little preview of the millennium because they've raised all kinds of animals together, and they're amazingly domestic when they are raised in a domestic environment. A neighbor of mine has two black panthers in a huge cage, and he uses them in movies. His name is Jerry somebody, and he does what's called unique designs. He's a fantastic, he's repaired one of my tables, but he's a fantastic uh, cabinet maker and carpenter and so on, and a, a builder. And he has these great big, oh, his cages are as high as this ceiling, about three levels in them, and great big seats or stools and some big branches that are built out of dried wood. And he has the panthers every now and then in the house. And he talked about the one tom, and of course you can hardly stand the smell of the cages, but the tom came running over there to the edge of the fence and plastered against the fence. And you know, I didn't know that leopards purr, but they purr very deep with a much deeper sound than a little tomcat. But that thing put its ear, and he'd reach in, he'd scratch that thing, and I'm looking at this huge, big, maybe 90, 100-pound black leopard. I mean, normally you'd be in terror or something like that running around. And that thing is in there running around, comes up, puts his head on his leg, and watches television with it. It's hard to believe. Well, what about living in a world where animals are like that? The calf and the young lion and the fat one together, and a little child shall lead them. Then there are going to be little children in the kingdom who are still children and are not spirit beings. How do they get there? Why, they survive. Because the blood of Christ is on the door and the lintels of the parents' hearts. Not their houses, but their minds and their hearts. And because if the parent is righteous before God, the child is saved. And there's nothing that children have to worry about. The cow and the bear shall feed, their young ones shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox, as they once did. God is going to change the nature of carnivores and make them into herbivores again. And the nursing child shall play on the hole that is the den, right where a poisonous adder or a rattlesnake might live. And the weaned child shall put his hand on the cockatrice's den or the adder's den, two different kinds of poisonous snakes implied. They, that means the animals, presently poisonous or dangerous, shall not hurt nor destroy in all my holy government or kingdom or mountain. For the earth shall be as full of the knowledge of the eternal as the waters cover the sea. I want to go to another scripture over in Zechariah, the 8th chapter, and verses 3 through 8. Zechariah 8, 3 through 8. Thus saith the eternal, I am returned unto Zion, and will dwell in the midst of Jerusalem, and Jerusalem shall be called a city of truth, and the mountain of the eternal of hosts, the holy mountain. Thus says the eternal of hosts, there shall yet old men and old women dwell in the streets of Jerusalem, and every man with his staff in his hand for very age. And the streets of the city shall be full of boys and girls playing in the streets thereof. Thus saith the Eternal of hosts, if it be marvelous in the eyes of the remnant of this people in these days, should it also be marvelous in mine eyes, says the Eternal of hosts. 
If they say, how can this be? Isn't it wonderful? Isn't it marvelous? Will not Christ himself rejoice and say, isn't this wonderful? Isn't it marvelous? I will save my people from the east country and from the west country, and I will bring them, and they shall dwell in the midst of Jerusalem, and they shall be my people, and I will be their God in truth and in righteousness. God is going to rebuild, that is, people are going to rebuild, and God is going to help them, this world after the horrible destruction that is going to come upon it during the coming tribulation and the day of the Lord. The tribulation and the day of the Lord is not the end of time. It is the beginning of time. It is when time opens up before us into the vastness of countless millennia into the future. There will be, apparently, from the time of Jesus Christ standing on this earth, 1,100 more years for the human family, made a little lower than the angels, to make the final decisions that that final great white throne judgment the group who were to come up, the rest of the dead who lived not again till the thousand years were finished, mentioned in Revelation 20 and verse 5, are to have an approximate 100-year lifespan after the millennium. And I do believe, because God says he is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance and to salvation. And the 11th chapter of Romans talks about Judah and Israel, and so all Israel shall be saved. The Jews that are, of course, going to yet suffer a horrible persecution and another holocaust in our immediate future and are partially beginning to bring it upon themselves again and heating up the hatred of the Arabs and all these things in the Middle East are directly relating to that and the religious strife and the religious and political antagonisms and anger against the Jewish people. But it says, and so shall all Israel be saved. So the bulk of the Jewish people are going to finally accept Christ and are going to be converted and baptized and receive God's Holy Spirit and be brought into God's kingdom. It isn't their time right now. So there is a little bit of a subtle desire on the part of many of us, and especially perhaps our youth, to say, forestall it, delay it, hold it back, give us time. Don't let these things occur. Don't let them occur till 2047. Let me be an 80-year-old man before they come along. But it won't be that way. It is going to occur, I think, somewhere very, very closely to the end of this century, but I cannot set dates, I think should think that any church leader has long since learned his lesson on that score. We look at world conditions. We look at what Christ said. When you see Jerusalem surrounded with armies. We look at Second Thessalonians 2, the great false prophet of that one who is called at least a son of perdition who will sit in the temple of God claiming that he is God. We see these key signs, the ones that Christ pointed to being the most important that is, when you see the abomination of desolation standing in the holy place where it ought not, then know the destruction of Jerusalem is nigh. And so the keys that he, give us in, he gives us in Matthew 24 and Luke 21 are the things we should look for, not weird ideas or vain chronologies or crazy ideas about interpretive history or uh, the brain of some uh, character that you think is the smartest man who ever lived. That's just not what you look for. You look at world conditions. But, you know, I want to be around someday, either in this life, to be among those who are changed instantaneously, as it says in 1 Corinthians 15, 50-52, in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trump, for the trumpet shall sound, and the dead shall be raised incorruptible, and we who are alive and remain shall be changed. But our children will not be. They will still be there beside us. And will you be better able to take care of your children as a member of the family of God? What if you were only elevated to angelic status? Would you be able to care for your child better than you can as a mother or a father? Well, of course. So you will be able to take care of your children, all right. You know, I am very privileged to live in a semi-country environment, and when I drive in here, as I did today, to come to church, to drive through a serene countryside with cattle in the fields. And I was thinking as I came in, this scripture that talks about like towns without walls, and how God is going to restore. The entire 36th chapter of Ezekiel talks about rebuilding and restoring the old waste places, and it says that Christ has been received into the heavens until the time of restoration or restitution of all things. And it talks about a man sitting under his own fig tree with his own cow and his own horse and his own chickens. I'm not sure there will be internal combustion engines in the millennium, because they are a pollutant devouring a non-renewable fossil fuel source. Why do you need a car? Well, 
to go to church. But he says, no man at that time will say, know the eternal. For every man will know me as I know them. And Paul said, I will then be known, or I will know him as I am now known. For we now see it through a glass darkly, but then face to face. We shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. And the Bible also says, for the earth shall be as full of the knowledge of the eternal as the oceans cover the beds of the seas. So you don't have to get in your car and drive a hundred miles to know about God. You'll know about God because God will be everywhere. Here will be a member, and there will be a member, here will be three or five or seven more who are members of God's family, and you will see them because they will be visible. And if you need to go to somewhere, well, why would you need to go anywhere? To go to work? Well, your work will be there. You will have your animals. You will have a cottage-type industry. Violin makers, if a violin is a beautiful instrument, and I think it is, will make violins. And weavers and people who will make fabulous cloth and fabulous things that are done with the human hand. Have you ever seen anything finer than Belgian lace? Ever seen anything finer than some of the most beautiful artistic works like a glass blower that makes things that are so dazzling you can't believe it? You can do that in a cottage industry, not in a huge antiseptic looking factory with great bellowing, bulk belching furnaces and a, a horrible din and a clangor on an assembly line. Why do you need a car? Where are you going to go? Well, to visit your relatives. Nonsense. Your relatives will be right there near you on part of the land that you are the patriarch, and you own it, and it's your land, and then you give them a parcel of land, and they own it, and you won't need to go anywhere to visit. Besides that, if you need to go anywhere, you can take an angel. That's right. See, when Ezekiel was taken to see the temple, he took an angel. An angel took Ezekiel, and he just went, and there he was looking at the temple all of a sudden. And he had an angel ride. Didn't use the SST. He wasn't in danger, because Eastern Airlines is trying to cut costs on maintenance and Maybe in the danger of killing people, he just took an angel. So in the millennium, if you really need to go somewhere, you can take an angel. But you won't have to drive a car. Cars kill people. They back over babies in driveways. They smash head on at 60, 80 miles an hour. And they smell and pollute. And they're ugly. We might think they're pretty, but that's just because we've got a perverted sense of what's pretty. God, God doesn't think a car's pretty. I don't think God thinks a car's pretty at all. I think he looks at it, the fact that it's... It's drinking in this fuel that he decided to make out of, you know, dead dinosaurs. And it's not all that enamored with automobiles the way we are. He says, as the heaven is high above the earth, so his thoughts are higher than our thoughts. And don't let any vain man say, I think I know how God thinks. Because he says, I don't think the way you people think. He thinks differently. So to the children, let me tell you, time is not going to close in on you. It is going to open up before you. And if you're like I am, maybe approaching elderly, or even middle, middle age. You want to be around long enough, like Abraham is going to look and see, and see all of these people and stare into their faces and say, well, what do you know about that? I did all of this. I want to be around to see the tribe of Mark and the tribe of Matthew and the tribe of David. And look in their faces. And someday there are going to be thousands of them. What about you? Put your name, your children, your son, and think about the fact that someday you can perhaps look into the faces of thousands of people who are part of the tribe that you helped put on this earth and that you helped get into the kingdom of God.